We are, in a sense, continuing our series through John. Um, We're just skipping ahead a little bit to John chapter 12. Uh, We're going to take a look at verses 12 through 19 for Palm Sunday as we look at John's account of the triumphal entry. So here uh, from God's word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to feast, to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The question here before us and the question for the people who had come out to meet Jesus on this road and waving palm trees is, do you really want a king? Do you want someone to rule over you? Now, as good Americans, this uh, we bristle a little bit at this when we know that our history is about getting rid of the tyrant King George, right? getting rid of having a monarchy over our country, over ourselves. Right? We fought a war. We established a government so that we wouldn't have a king. We would have a republic, a democratic republic. And for many in Israel, they didn't want a true king who would set them free from the ultimate slavery. They wanted an earthly king, a political king, who would set them free from Rome, that they would establish an earthly kingdom. And this account of the triumphal entry is actually one of the few stories, one of the few incidents that has been recorded in all four Gospels. And so it is somewhat set apart in that sense. And so here on Palm Sunday, we revisit what it means for Jesus to enter Jerusalem as a king on a donkey. Here Jesus is coming from Bethany, where, if you remember, there's a, right, the famous story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. The story where he hears about Lazarus being ill, he hears about Lazarus being dead, and he is in no hurry to get there. And when he gets there, he weeps because his friend has died. And he weeps even though he knows that Lazarus, in his, the power of Christ, will be raised from the dead. He will see his friend once more. And he weeps because he knows the penalty for sin is death. He weeps because he knows that death is, in a sense, king over humanity. And so he raises Lazarus from the dead and he calls out like he calls out to the Christian, come, rise and live. 
Let me remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Let me remove the penalty of sin that you were dead in your trespasses and now made alive in Christ Jesus. So there were others with Jesus as he was moving from Bethany to Jerusalem in the beginning of the Passover feast. These pilgrims who were coming for Passover, they wanted to go to the temple. They wanted to go to Jerusalem to make that pilgrimage. And there were people there who heard about Lazarus. There were people there who were in Bethany and saw Lazarus being raised from death to life. And there were people who wanted another sign. And this idea of sign comes up over and over in the Gospel of John, as we've seen, as we've walked through it, and we've seen, Jesus, give us another sign. Jesus, you multiplied the bread. You multiplied the fishes. We followed you. We want to know about the bread, the bread that you multiplied. right? And then he goes and tells them how he's the bread of life, and they don't want to hear it anymore. Like, no, 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 just, we wanted bread. No, not, not these metaphors of bread. We just wanted bread. Like the Israelites got in the desert, the manna. We wanted to see you make the lame walk again, the blind see. Now we heard you did the ultimate miracle. You raised someone from the dead. Show us another sign. We just want to be sure. We just want to see something spectacular. However, these signs seem to make little difference when Jesus gives the crowd signs and they get a glimpse of who he really is, where he came from, what he's really here to accomplish, who sent him. When Jesus spoke words after giving a sign, the words were often hard and the crowds would disperse. The Pharisees would plot and the disciples would be confused. What does he mean he is the bread of life? I don't understand. Though some believed and some spoke of what he has done, many wanted to see just signs and wonders. The assumption happening in these verses that we read is that there's a crowd that Jesus was met on the road from Bethany to Jerusalem by pilgrims. As he's walking in there, they realize it's Jesus. He's kind of walking along and gathering a crowd like Forrest Gump when he runs across country and all these people decide, I want to be near this guy. I want to, he's doing something different. And people start running with him. That's similar to what happens with Jesus. People start walking with him. Although everybody's trying to go to Jerusalem and Forrest Gump, nobody really knows what's going on. They just know it's something special. That's similar to Jesus. They know Jesus is something special, but they don't quite understand. Many of these programs would have been Galileans. They would have been familiar with what he has done, his ministry. Others about what he did with Lazarus, raising him from the dead. They wanted to know what all the fuss was about. What is going on? with this Jesus. I don't want to get too off topic, but the more I think about Forrest Gump, the more it's true. Like, he grows his beard. He's kind of this like, hip, I mean, the way that we look at Jesus now and imply these things, like he's kind of this bearded, hippie, sandal-wearing, tunic-wearing guy who just kind of roamed around saying these 
interesting things. These people wanted to know what all the fuss was about. When we hear that he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, I think for most of us, we don't initially think majestic. Right? We don't initially think king. We don't think powerful, a king who will slay his enemies. We think awkward, stubborn. Maybe what's going on here? We don't have an expectation that this is how a king is to enter his reign. But this is exactly how the Lord of glory, how Jesus Christ himself entered Jerusalem. It, it is what was prophesied in the Old Testament. It marked the beginning of the final events of this, what we call Holy Week. Of his final acts of humiliation being brought low in this world to finally seeing his exaltation. Right? We tend to think, I think of, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if this is a real portrait or not, but in my mind, right, uh, George Washington, like this, on like this mighty steed. Right? Someone who would be a leader on, of a country, riding on a beautiful horse. There are a few times actually in the Old Testament, um, in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, where uh, the king and his court are actually uh, talked about using a donkey. Even King David riding on, uh, uh, riding on a donkey, letting his son Solomon ride on the donkey. And they might remember this, and they might remember that there was a Messiah who would come on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And these people cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. And they expected a mighty conquering king, even as our expectations of a king on a horse, their expectations were of a king to come, a Messiah who would save them from Rome. Their expectations were about to be transformed. They expected that this king coming on the donkey would be one who would throw off their bondage, their slavery, their oppressors, just as King David had defeated the Philistines. They were looking for a king to defeat the Romans and Caesar to establish their new mighty kingdom on earth. In our Christmas series, we took a look about how the Messiah fulfilled these Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. And here we see the, the role of king being fulfilled. In our shorter catechism, we read question 87. In question 23, it says, What offices does Christ fill as our Redeemer? Taking from Scripture, the Catechism shares with us that Christ, as our Redeemer, fills the offices of prophet, priest, and king. In both his states of humiliation, of being brought low, and his states of exaltation. How does Christ fulfill the, prophet, uh, the office of prophet? By revealing to us by his word, as a prophet brings the word. And by the Spirit, the will of God for our complete salvation. 
What about the priest? And priest is once offering up for himself to God as a sacrifice, both as priest and sacrifice, to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, and by making constant, by sitting at the right hand of the Father, intercession for us. And then how does Christ fulfill the office of king? Our focus in his entry into Jerusalem. Christ fills the office of a king in making us his willing subjects and ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. And we got to be careful to not read into that these political ramifications just as the Jews might have read into that. He's talking about, they're talking about Satan's sin and death. And the effects thereof. And what the people of Israel wanted was this earthly king. They didn't want a king in humiliation, in being made low. They wanted only a king in exaltation. David was their king. He defeated his enemies, not only in his strength, but in the strength of the Lord. And all his military prowess All his earthly reign, David could not offer eternal victory. He could not offer eternal rest, eternal comfort, eternal reign. It could not be made permanent. Even after his death, his son Solomon, if you remember the stories in the Old Testament, if you don't, you can look back and you can see that Solomon only enjoyed peace for a short time. He disobeyed God pretty much immediately. (laughs) Even being the wisest man to have ever lived, asking God for one thing, wisdom, he was extremely foolish in his own choices. He had the knowledge, but he didn't apply it to his own life. God said to him, do not accumulate horses. Horses, The accumulation of horses were military power and might. I want to have power over my enemies. The Lord said to him, do not accumulate gold. Do not accumulate wives. And if you know anything about Solomon, it was almost as if he said, oh, I shouldn't do that? I'll show you. And then he did. It was like reverse psychology. And then he accumulated all those things. Very foolish in doing so. And God disciplined the line of Solomon and the line of David for, their, for Solomon's and David's idolatry and sin. And what was lost on, these, on the people of Israel was that it was not Rome that was the ultimate and true enemy of God's people. It was sin and it was death. That's what it means when the Catechism says restraining all of his and our enemies. This could not be done on a white horse wearing white hat like in the old westerns against the great armies of the world. Instead, it took humility, humiliation, being made low under the law. In doing so, in being brought before judgment and trial, 
Satan thought he had won and he had claimed victory. They didn't understand that by killing Jesus, they were losing. They were being defeated. They didn't realize that Jesus was king over even death. That in dying, he conquered it. And by rising again, he showed his power over it. David couldn't do that. King George couldn't do that. Any president could never do that. And I'm reminded of the unexpected hero in stories. This is my, my question for uh, you this morning in thinking about this, is what story sticks out to you of the unexpected hero? If you could think about it. I'll steal the easy one quick, and then you guys could think about maybe a hard, another one that you remember in a story that you've read or you've watched or you've seen. Right? For me, it's the Lord of the Rings. Kind of an easy one to go back to over and over again for a lot of different reasons. But Frodo, this tiny hobbit and hobbiton who in the Shire, who just wants to live a regular life. He just wants to be left alone, right? Pretty much that's what hobbits want, to live in peace and quiet. What? With two breakfasts and secondsies, right? Yeah. All those things. To eat a lot. To enjoy life. And the unexpected is that is thrust upon Frodo, and he gets this ring, right? And he does. He's not. He's unassuming. You would never expect him to be the hero. You would never expect him to be the one that would save mankind by bringing the ring. Spoiler to Mount Doom. And destroying it. I mean, it's like 60 years old now, so it's, I don't know if you could say spoilers anymore. But, I mean, can you think of a story how the unexpected person saved people in unexpected ways? Because right? you read Lord of the Rings and you think Strider, right? Aragorn, this mysterious fighter, wandering, roaming who ends up part, being part of the, the fellowship. And then we find out he's actually heir to the throne and king. Or Gandalf, right? He becomes... He actually overcomes Satan, right? The demon and death and becomes white. It's almost like he's Jesus in the story. And that's what Tolkien loves to do in the story is he takes unexpected turns. And there's not just one character who's the Christ character. It's multiple characters, and they become in different, unexpected ways. You didn't know this wandering man who's mysterious, wearing the dark cloak, was the king, and unexpectedly you find out he is. He, I, I mean, some of you might know this, right? He, Tolkien and Lewis, over a pipe and a beer in pubs, would fight about their stories. Tolkien didn't like that Aslan was Jesus, and everybody knew it. And it was just out there. That was his critique of Narnia. In Lord of the Rings, this unassuming character is the one that conquers 
Satan by throwing the ring of power into Mount Dune and Sauron can no longer rule and reign and bring his evil and darkness over Middle-earth. It's unassuming. You might have your own stories in your mind. You're thinking about the unassuming character that is the savior of the story. So what are our expectations? Sometimes I think our expectations of what Jesus is or what he has done is not that much different than the people of Israel. We see what they did not see, right? What has been revealed to us. And yet often we still are looking for political Messiah, someone to save us. The way that the, the church, say broadly, broadly across the spectrum, can often talk about political candidates for president. If you listen to some of the language used, it can be messianic. All stripes and all parties. Right? Instead of waving palm branches, we can wave flags and other banners. This is one of the reasons. Um, so the, the flags were closer in, and early on I moved them further out. And um, when, we were, uh, when we were having service um, at our mother church, we'd be in the town hall. Sometimes we'd have to meet at Noah Webster, and there was an American flag right behind the Lord's table. And I, for, for some people, you might say, like, that's not a big deal. Okay, like, it's just it's, it, the American flag's in the school. It's part of, like, the public school system or whatever. And I remember we had a guest preacher come in, and he specifically took it and moved it out of the sanctuary. Why? Now, for some of you, you really might think it's not, it's not a big deal. I wouldn't ever mix that the American flag has anything to do with the Lord's Supper or worship. But this pastor that came in wanted no hint of that. He wanted to make sure that anybody there from any tribe, tongue, nation wouldn't connect the United States of America with the Church of Jesus Christ. Instead of shouting Hosanna, we shout praises, shed tears, get autographs. Our enemy is the other, and our Savior must defeat that other. And we are continually disappointed with these earthly kings. Kings. Right? I thought we Americans didn't want our kings, but it seems that often we do. We just call them something else. Now, this doesn't mean that politics aren't important. They are often, but it doesn't mean that they are the ultimate. We must remember that as the church, what our purpose is, what our mission is, as the church body, corporate, gathered, We do not just vapidly wave palm branches. We bow down and submit our lives to King Jesus. Ephesians 2 gives us a glimpse into what this is. So that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Not with a political party, not even with a country built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in which the whole structure, 
being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A vision for our church is to be a family formed by the gospel, to worship Christ and to love God and our neighbor. As the body of Christ in Suffield, we have a deep passion to see Christ glorified and people raised from death to life. And there will be times when our prophetic voice, the word of God, smashes against the the politics of this world. That is certain. When we speak the truth in love, some will call it hate. When we seek to show grace to the hated of this world, people will be displeased. When we proclaim the glories of the risen Christ as the only Savior of the world, we will be called, called intolerant and closed-minded. We will be asked a question, do you now or have you ever worshipped Jesus or been part of his church? Peter followed Jesus and then denied him under pressure. We will be under pressure as well. Pressure to be more accepting. Pressure to tone down the Jesus talk. Pressure to change the definition of what love is. Pressure to call evil good and good evil. And we hold fast to the confession. We remember with boldness, remember with certainty what the writer of Hebrews said. He said, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us endure and consider one another in order to stove up, stir up one another in love and good works, not forsaking the assembling and gathering ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There's so many good words in there, giving us boldness and assurance in our faith, an assurance of who we worship and who we bow down to in King Jesus. That we do not want to offer a false Jesus, a Jesus that is red or blue. We want to offer the Christ of the Scriptures. We want the Jesus of Hebrews. The Jesus gives us that boldness and assurance that is faithful, that gathers us together, that makes us a family. We proclaim with boldness, and we do not put forth one Jesus to get people in the door, and then another Jesus to save them. We proclaim him real and true. Some will shout Hosanna, some some will shout, save me. Some will mean it, but most do not want the kingship that Jesus offers. This is true now as it was 2,000 years ago. We just don't wave palm branches anymore. The acclaim of Christ's entry into Jerusalem does not last long. We know what is coming. It is not a mystery for us. 
It will be replaced by demands for his death. I mean, think about how quickly the tide turns from praise to persecution. It's less than a week. In less than a week, Christ will be go, go from king to criminal. Matthew Henry writes this about the laying of palm branches. He was a, a Puritan pastor and their clothing upon Jesus' path. He says this, Those who take Christ for king must lay all under his feet, not just palm branches in a cloak. The crowd in the end did not want him to rule in this way. They wanted to just give their token, not their whole life. That was the way he designed, to give your whole life to the kingship of Jesus. And their praises were hollow. And sometimes we act in the same way, holding on to our sin, not laying it down for the kingdom of Jesus Christ, even as we praise him with our mouths. The good news is that like Peter, we can be restored, we can be forgiven. Like Peter who praised Jesus one minute and denied him the next was welcomed into the kingdom and loved by Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean that we live perfect lives, but it means that when we fail, Jesus still welcomes us into his kingdom with open arms. The question is, are you part of the crowd or are you part of his kingdom? Is he your king? Let's pray.